This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 150, Yari Kirkland Hyatt. Adventure racing and ski mountaineering. Hey friends, this is Kurt. I have a special announcement for you. We said earlier to save the date, April 22nd, for an Adventure Sports Podcast meetup. And now I have more details. We're going to have Peter Schuster there as a guest speaker who's going to be teaching us all about thru-hiking and specifically thru-hiking the Continental Divide Trail. Now this event is going to be held at Mud Rocks in Louisville, Colorado. If you are in Colorado or you can get to Colorado, then by all means come by. We'd love to meet you, shake your hand, and visit for the evening. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you're outside of Colorado, don't lose heart. We're going to have a live-streamed presentation so you can watch Peter Schuster as he tells us about the Continental Divide Trail and his hike there. So it ought to be a great event. We would ask, though, that if you are coming in person, you RSVP. Seating is limited to about 50 people, so this is going to be an intimate event, a lot of fun, but once those 50 slots are gone, they're gone. So please RSVP by going to adventuresportspodcast.com, and there on the upper right-hand side is a button that will allow you to RSVP. The cost of the event is only $10, and for that $10, you get to hear Peter Schuster's presentation and meet Peter. Also, your first drink is going to be on us. And you also will be entered for some great door prizes that we're going to be giving away, some backpacking gear that ought to be a lot of fun. Proceeds from the event go to benefit the Continental Divide Trail Coalition. It's the group that helps to maintain and promote the Continental Divide Trail, so a good cause there. And of course, this is a restaurant, so there'll be food there that you can purchase to go with your evening. So one more time, this is at Mud Rocks in Louisville, Colorado. It's going to be April the 22nd. Now, we're going to show up around 5.30 just to kind of greet people, but the actual uh, presentation will start closer to 6, and uh, the cost is $10, and there will be food there that you can also purchase, and we're really looking forward to meeting you there and spending a fantastic Friday evening together. So thanks, and we'll see you there. Today, I have Yari Hyatt with us, and Yari is an adventure sports goddess. It's amazing all the things that she has done and continues to do. She's been heavily involved in mountain biking, and then she became a uh, an avid triathlete, and then she started doing adventure racing all over the world. We're here to talk to Yari about what it's like to do adventure racing, to be on the U.S. Ski Mountaineering Team and also what it's like to build an adventure-based lifestyle. So, Yari, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yari, I just really enjoyed our pre-interview visit just now because I learned so much about what you've got going on. Holy cow, you have so many irons in the fire. Fill our guests in on what your life is like these days. Well, I am... Well, I just got back like a week and a half ago from Punta Arenas, which is the most southern area of Patagonia and Chile. 
And I did, I actually won, but we competed in the Patagonia Expedition Race, which is um, notably probably the most epic adventure race in the world. The weekend before that, I did two different ski mountaineering races in New Mexico, a couple other ski mountaineering races this winter. Last year, I actually went um, off course a little bit, and I qualified and competed at Kona Ironman. Um, mostly because it was just on my bucket list of something to do. But yeah, last year I was in Paraguay adventure racing, um, mountain bike raced all over the U.S., more ski mountaineering races. Just keeps going like that. Good cycle. (laughs) You've got an awful lot going on with all of this stuff. So right now you live in Crested Butte, Colorado. Yep. And why Crested Butte? It was a little bit of a fluke. Um, I went to a a private university in the South. When I graduated, I I did not want to stay in the South. So I promptly started driving West and I actually ended up in Breckenridge and I was there for a few years. And then at a 24 hour mountain bike race, I basically lipped off to the wrong few guys and ended up doing an adventure race with them three weeks later. And they <laughs> were all from Crested Butte and Gunnison. And so I found myself moving to Crested Butte to be on this adventure racing team and be able to train together and all that stuff you know crested butte is lovely what an amazing place it it is it is actually one of my very favorite places in colorado and i think people all feel that way about where they live and stuff but it is truly beautiful beautiful winter summer it's amazing oh yeah year round there's great things to do there and the your ski mountaineering i mean you couldn't be in a better place than that plus you have the ski area at crested butte which is epic We'll just say epic, right? Yeah, the steepest lift access terrain in the country. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I really like skiing there. And then in the summertime, mountain biking galore. Oh, yeah, and which, of course, is this, I mean, trail running, mountain biking. And we actually have really good whitewater. Flat water is not very far away. So all the training that I need to do is um, pretty at hand. Yari, I met you through Dave Weens, And a few weeks back, we interviewed him about Western State Colorado University's mountain sports program. And But how do you know Dave? So he actually lives next door to one of my old teammates, Brian Wickenhauser. And so I met Dave maybe 12 years ago. And um, I actually knew his wife a little bit better because we used to go out and like do women's Tuesday night women's mountain bike rides. And um, I have known her a while through that. But then, of course, we suckered Dave into doing some stupid things with us and adventure racing different places. And so I've got the chance to hang out with him a fair bit. <laughs> well, we'll have to give Dave a little bit of a hard time. I'd like to hear some of those stories, the stupid uh, stuff you got Dave to do. There's amazing stories. Amazing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, will you tell us the story of how you got started in all this stuff? I mean, when you were two years old, you probably didn't say, I'm going to go to Patagonia and do an adventure race. No, I was a swimmer in high school and I played soccer. And there came a point where It was like I had to kind of choose which one I maybe wanted to go to college for and see if I could get on scholarship. And I chose swimming, and I did get on scholarship. And so I went to um, this university, Division II, and I swam. Um, But it was a pretty small school, and I definitely don't lack energy. So two of the years, my junior or my sophomore and junior year, I also ran cross country just for the fun of it. And so then I graduated, promptly moved to Colorado, and thought to myself, well, if I can run and swim, certainly I can bike and put it together in a triathlon. And 
did a triathlon and loved it. And then it just escalated into craziness, really one little baby step at a time. <laughs> so let's give the, the listeners who may not be familiar with adventure racing. I, okay. I think most people are, but let's give them a little bit of the details. What kind of distances are we talking about? How long are these races? How are they done? Okay. So really an adventure race is just the premise of that. Um, about 90% of the time it, it involves three different sports. It usually is paddling, running, trekking, and mountain biking. And you usually um, do it with a map and a compass. You have to find your way with a map and a compass. So there's nothing marked, no set course. Um, that, And there are races in the U.S. that are six hours long. So short, sweet, you know, yeah, it's not very long. To this race in Patagonia, um, I mean, we, we were on the clock for a little bit less than six days, and it was 400 and 400, 700 kilometers, so somewhere in there. Wow. Um, yeah. And the world championships are usually about a thousand, like 600 miles, about a thousand kilometers. Um, and that's usually about the same six days. So, yeah. And we can, we repel, we ascend. They, I've inline skated before in an adventure race, whitewater, flatwater paddling. Um, I'm trying to think there's random horseback riding as we had horses in one of them, camels in one. Um, yeah. Random things. <laughs> How fun. Yeah. So you've traveled all over the world doing this. I, I want to just get your perspective on world travel. There is something to be said about leaving the country and trying to race at your highest performance level with things that are very foreign to you. Going to China, the first year I went to China to race, um, the food kicked my booty. It um, rocked my world a little bit and not in a good way. It was like a total shock. Couldn't find anything except for like plain white rice that I could really eat. I mean, that sat well with me. And so the next time I went, I like took all my own food. I was like, okay, enough of that. Um, so you just kind of have to know where you're going and what you're going to be able to eat. It affects how well you race if you don't feel well, or if you can't get the nutrition you're used to. China is very, it's like crazy polluted. And so we'd get done and be like, I think I just smoked a pack of cigarettes basically. Like, <laughs> right. That's like, once again, it's like dealing with all the little things that in my Crested Butte world, I don't have to deal with, you know, being like in New Zealand where you're like 12, 18 hours off your time, um, your time clock inside. And so you just have to like, yeah, just do what you can with what you have, you know, like try to acclimate as best you can. And yeah, there's a lot actually that goes into racing around the world. You have to be able to like put your bike in a box and put it back together again and be able to fix anything that got broke on the plane. Well, here's the thing that's so cool about this. Our, our listeners love adventure sports, as as do I, as do we, right? And and adventure sports are awesome. Our, our listeners love adventure travel. Yeah. And we have a lot of people that just do adventure travel on the show. Uh -huh. And when we get to interview someone like you who does multiple adventure sports and has found a way to incorporate that into adventure travel, it's kind of fun because you get you get such a variety of sports and you kind of get it all in one package. You do. And I have to say that, like, I mean, I could go someplace and just ride my bike for six days or what have you or trek or whatever. But I, I definitely think that adds a, a whole nother component to be like, OK, now we're going to paddle for 10 hours and being able to paddle for 10 hours and then trek for 36 and ride your bike for 24 and added on top of each other. And th there is definitely some different aspect of that. Sometimes it's good. 
Because sometimes you're like, oh, I just want to get off my bike. And then you get start to trek and you're off your bike. Whereas if you just bike for, you know, weeks, then you're just biking. So maybe good and bad about both. Or So Yari, why do you do it? Why do you compete? Ooh, I compete, well, A, because I love it. It is, it is, now of course it's like ingrained in my fibers, but I'm actually not maybe the most competitive person on the planet. I um, I mean, I compete with myself. I I really have found that being in a race situation, it pushes me further than just going out to train or if I wanted to do an adventure, I would probably sleep more than like two hours a night um, like we do when we adventure race. It's um definitely more of an internal um, push myself thing than a external I need to compete maybe. Um, it's just in that format and it definitely works for me. I like it. So when you push your body that hard, you know, you're racing for days and days and days, and you just said two hours a night, not much sleep, extreme distances. Um, that's got to take you to a place that most people don't go to. Can you tell us a story about that? Um, well, I don't actually, I, I don't do drugs and maybe I don't ever need to now that I've adventure raced because I've definitely had a couple of really good hallucinations <laughs> based on sleep deprivation. And I think that maybe just people like if you've trekked and if you've been really cold for like days on end, I, I would imagine that even if you've had sleep that you can relate to that or biked or something. Cause you definitely, um, yeah, you definitely get to a point four days in where you've maybe slept for like six hours or something. And you look at something like a bush and you're like, why is it carved in the shape of a penguin? That's so weird. Or it's at night and you're like trekking through the woods and you're like getting tired. And I've definitely said to the guys I've been with, hey, guys, there's a house. Let's, let's sleep on the porch because we can. And they're like, Yari, there, there's no house. And I'm like, yeah, there is. <laughs> they're like, no, sweetie, there's no house. And I'll, after like, you know, not arguing with them, but being like, really? I think there's a house like having to accept that, that I was just like dreaming it up because I wanted it to be there, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I think that the separation between awake and asleep kind of gets crossed, you know, that that line gets pretty fuzzy when you're that tired. Yeah. Well, and I would say more than half the time of adventure race, I'm the main navigator and it really like puts a strain on, on you to be awake and aware of the map and where you're going at all times. And, because you don't want to make a mistake and end up 10 miles off course. Um, and and so that situation is like, maybe sometimes it's better because you're so focused that you have something to think about. Maybe sometimes when you're just like, oh, we stay on the same trail for the next 20 miles, you can kind of check out. And when you check out, I think sometimes that's when your active imagination takes over. <laughs> your waking dreams start yeah. to have a role. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> So tell us a story of an adventure race, maybe not the whole race, not a summary, but just a segment in time when something really unique happened that you think represents what's special about adventure racing. Well, I honestly believe adventure racing that truly like anything can happen. Like, so we, I was just in Patagonia, so it's fresh in my mind. And we started this section, we paddled across this fjord and it was not very long. It was 6K. And so we get to the other side we get to dump all of our paddling gear um, so we don't have to trek with it. But we put on, you know, all like you take off your dry suit and you end up with your Gore-Tex. You know, I have my outdoor research Gore-Tex clothes on. And I um, we start trekking because it's raining because it's Patagonia. And the first thing we do is literally go st bushwhack straight up this mountain. 
and it's maybe like 3,500 vertical feet, maybe a little bit more. And by the time we get to the top, it's snowing, and there's three new inches of snow, and we're just in our tennis shoes and our, like, bike gloves, basically, and everything is getting soaking wet, and your feet are starting to freeze because every time you step, like, snow is on top of them. And so we, like, get up and over this pass as like, quick as we can. Like, you're not dilly-dallying because you just are getting colder. And then literally we drop off the backside and the sun comes out just enough. And it's just like this beautiful, there's no snow on the ground. It's probably now up to 55 degrees. We like have taken off our Gore-Tex jackets. Um, There's huge glaciers, crazy lakes. And then we drop down to this valley and we end up trekking in a bog. And like, so your feet, every step, it's like four or five inches of water in like mushy ground for maybe the next like six hours. So like in the span of like eight, nine hours, I was like straight vertical uphill, snow, sunshine, crazy descents, glaciers, and bogginess. Mm. That kind of might summarize like an adventure race. Like you kind of have to be ready for anything. Well, it sounds like quite an experience. So Yari, I know we have listeners out there who hear this story and just say, you know what, that sounds like it might be out of reach for me, but maybe not. Maybe I should try to do something and see what I could do. What would you recommend for someone that's interested in testing the waters of endurance sports like this? I would say it's definitely viable. It's feasible. It is a amazing goal to have. Um, I would say, honestly, like showing up to an adventure race it's maybe half physical and the other half is mental like we see it a lot like people are just not prepared for the fact that like you might run out of food and end up trekking for six hours with no food and that's not awesome you like get tired or you know you mentally you just have to tell yourself before the race even starts like no matter what happens i will not quit like doesn't matter i don't care how bad the situation gets i will not quit and the next thing would be just to talk to someone like in depth more who's done an adventure race or actually finished an adventure race and pick their brain a little bit of maybe what exactly more to expect. But honestly, I think most people could probably finish an adventure race. You know, it, it might take some time to like train yourself to be able to go win an adventure race, but for sure finishing one is, is completely feasible. If you're an outdoorsy person and you, you know, know what it's like to trek and bike and paddle. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check BentGate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. 
Hey, River Rats, you've heard nature photographer John Fielder discuss Colorado's free-flowing Yampa River on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Now get the 150 scenic and historic pictures behind the words. John's latest coffee table book guides you from its headwaters in the Flat Tops Wilderness to the confluence with the Green River and Dinosaur National Monument. Visit johnfielder.com for more about the book or get your copy now at amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite independent Colorado book retailer. Once again, that book is Colorado's Yampa River, free-flowing and wild from the flat tops to the green. We heard from a fellow the other day who was talking about extreme ultramarathoning, and he's he's done uh, three thousand mile runs, which is, is just crazy. But he said that the way it started for him was he had a reason to try to get more exercise, and so he would go out his front door and run until he started feeling kind of tired, and then turn and come back home again. And you know, at first maybe that was a half mile. Who knows? And then little by little, it, it, the distances just kept getting bigger, and it was just something he enjoyed to do. And then he started jumping on a bus, and he would take the bus some distance and jump off and run back home again. And over time, he became an ultra-distance runner that um, just really enjoys what he does. And I think, you know what? If we start small enough and we're careful, I, I bet you just about anybody could get into these things. I definitely, I mean, for sure, that's how it happened with me. Like, I mean, my first run when I moved to Breckenridge, granted, I came from sea level to like 10,000 feet. I think I ran two miles and laid on the ground and thought I was having a heart attack because there was no air. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe tomorrow I'll do the same like 20 minutes, you know, like it was not very long. And I definitely built up. And at some point, though, I I think I advocate signing up for a race that you might not be prepared for or doing something, doing an adventure race. Like, so say like your longest run ever was 10 miles, then to go out with a, a friend or sign up for a marathon, because at some point you've trained enough and it's just the mental ability to like, say, okay, I'm just going to finish. Even if I have to walk or whatever, like it's okay. Cause the longest race I'd ever done before I raced my bike for 24 hours was maybe like three or four hours. And I'd ridden my bike for eight hours, but I'd never ridden my bike at night. I'd never stayed up all night. Like I'd never done any of these things, but I just signed up and thought, I'm just going to do my best, you know? And so for sure, like, I don't think you should do a 24-hour mountain bike race off the couch, but I definitely think you can train a little bit, train a little bit, sign up for your 10K, sign up for a half marathon, but then just jump to the marathon or it doesn't have to be always these little baby steps. There can be bigger leaps and bounds. Um, you know, don't hurt yourself. Yeah. Don't pull, like, don't hurt your Achilles, like, on mile three and then run a marathon because that's not going to be beneficial either. Like, You know, I wanted to ask you about that because it's always been my my experience is I probably try to do too much without enough preparation, but I get injuries, you know, it's, it's a hip or it's a knee or something. And I just think, wow, how do you keep going? Or maybe you don't, I mean, what's your recommendation for injuries? You know, I don't know. I mean, knock on some wood quick. I haven't really had very many injuries. My injuries have only come like I had a really bad road cycling accident one and tore my AC, my AC joint, but I have, I just went 400 miles and I like, worked out like five days later. Like, I don't know. I, I've been blessed with, uh, 
pretty injury free. I don't know. And so I don't, I don't know that aspect. Like maybe someone who is a professional that has had more injuries like that can help. Cause I mean, I, I don't know, lift weights, see someone like do some cross training. <laughs> you know, the one thing that I've learned, and this is no advice really, but what I've learned is if I keep on going when I am injured, I just end up hurting myself a lot worse. Oh yeah, for sure. hundred you know. percent. A lot. And a lot of professional athletes can't say no. Like they, during a race hurt themselves and then they end up literally like, oh, they tweak their ankle, but they still ran the last 25 miles or their 50 miler and they like destroy it. And then the doctors are like, we can't really fix it. And then they're done. So no, I don't think you should. Yeah. There's a time and place to be like, it's no longer, it's going to hurt me beyond repair if I keep going. But you know, if you have a blister, that's probably not the case. <laughs> right. But if you've got something in a joint that's just going wrong, maybe it's time to, to take a break. Huh? And like if you're like, you know, if you can tell like a tendon is rubbing and it's like getting inflamed. Yeah. Time to not like explode it and like cause permanent damage for sure. So if people want to learn more about the adventure race that you've done, I'm going to give them the, the website here. Uh, PatagonianExpeditionRace.com. Yes. And you just competed on the God Zone team. Yes. And you took first place. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. Um, it's a great website, and you can learn an awful lot about adventure racing and about specifically this Patagonian expedition race. Yeah. I actually think there's a lot of information. Like, if you go to Facebook, if you type in, like, the Patagonia expedition race, I think um, on Facebook stuff comes up also. I think they update that just as much, to be honest. Okay. Cool. So that's where people can find more information. I wanted yeah. to ask you about your ski mountaineering. So you're on the U.S. ski mountaineering team as well. So yeah. what what is ski mountaineering? <laughs> ski mountaineering is essentially like backcountry skiing with wicked light gear at a wicked fast pace. Um, so in a race, well, this weekend we're going to Breckenridge. So, and it's, this is a longer race. This is like the beginning races of the season are usually like two hours, two and a half hours. And this one will probably be like four. But we will start and we actually peak out at five different peaks in Breckenridge. We start the base area, go up to the summit of a peak, ski off of it. So you have skins that are like, envision like shark skin. Like it's smooth one way and really rough the other. It's a little fuzzier than that. But we put them on the bottom of your skin, skis. Your heel is free, but you like walk up or whatever to the top and you pull the skins off and then you lock your heel in like you're alpine skiing and you ski down and they have it flagged like you have it's not between gates they just have flags to mark the course and you have to stay within like 20 feet of the flags so then you ski down double diamonds to like groomers it depends on where the course is and then you do it again you get to the bottom of some place you put your skins back on you skin back up to the top of something and then you take your skins off and ski down and yeah like some races you only do it three skin changes and this race i think is like five so what kind of distances are we talking about well i mean some races are like it's like five thousand vertical feet in maybe 10 miles so i mean kind of steep but not crazy steep but then like the elk mountain grand traverse is the ski mountaineering race it goes from Crested Butte to Aspen. It's kind of epic because you start at night because of avalanche danger because you're in the backcountry. And that's only like, what did we say, 7,000 vertical feet in 42 miles or 9,000. It's not very many vertical feet for how many, how long it is. So it's really flat. So you end up like all like gliding more than just like going straight up mountains. 
Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, a, a race that's like two hours long, you usually end up doing like 4,000 vertical feet or something and eight miles or 10 miles. So you're on the U.S. Ski Mountaineering team. Mm-hmm. And how many teams are there that compete against each other? And where does this team take you? You have to qualify to be on the U.S. team. So you have like a couple of races that are the national qualifier and then competing at nationals. And then they like take the top eight women and the top like 12 or something men. And then you compete at the world championships. And that's always been in Europe because they have, I mean, it's huge in Europe. They'll get like 700 people showing up for a race where we get like 250, you know, or a hundred. Um, and so we compete against all the European teams. Um, I'm trying to think. There was a couple Australians. We have some Japanese. Like the Japanese compete. They've got good snow. They do some stuff. Um, that kind of thing. They're tr- I think it's like going to be an expedition sport in the next Winter Olympics or something maybe. Oh, that's pretty cool. So describe the skis that you use. So, you know, when you look at a normal alpine ski these days, it has shape. The tip is like wider at the top and then it's like narrow under the foot and then the the tail gets wider again and it's if um back in the day people used to ski on skis that were like 200 centimeters long which is long it's like over your head and now a typical ski for like me if i'm gonna like ski on the resort or backcountry is you know like head height or something maybe even shorter than that like eye level and that would be like a 170 for me maybe and these skis I ski on, I race on our 157s, so they're considerable amount shorter. And they are literally like made of carbon and they weigh nothing. They weigh the same amount basically as a Nordic ski, but they look exactly like a normal ski. Um, they have like width at the top, narrow under the foot. They're just not as big and beefy as a normal downhill ski. Um, so it makes them a little bit less stable. They don't, they don't race through the crud as good as a normal ski. But your boot, once again, if you saw me in lift line, if I had my ski mountaineering stuff on, you wouldn't think anything of it. They're bright green. You might be like, oh, they're kind of ugly, but they they don't look that much different. But if you picked it up, you would be blown away by how light they are and how make, that makes it much easier to go uphill. Mm, okay, so you're free hill on the way up, and so you can lock your boot in for the, the downhill? Yep. Yep. And it literally becomes exactly like an Alpine boot. It's, I mean, it's full of carbon, so it's like gets super stiff. And um, I ski just like I ski my Alpine boots. I mean, not maybe not quite as aggressive because they're, um, yeah, they're the skis. I mean, they're still not like it's, I can't ski like Lindsey Vaughn, you know, <laughs> but I, I could still do the same course. I just wouldn't be as fast, of course. So how much does it cost to get into gear like that? Well, I mean, like the super nice gear. I mean, you're talking like $700 for bindings, probably like $1,500 for a pair of boots and skis that are probably like six, $700. And, um, and all in all, if you think about it, if that's like the highest end, that's nothing really compared to like a sweet $8,000 mountain bike. And I, of course, live in a mountain town. I ski six months of the year. And so it's a great investment for me. I'll do this for the rest of my life because I can, because it's super, you know, easy, but you could step it down and have like gear that's a little bit heavier, um, not even that much, and probably take off half that cost. You know, get boots that are like eight, nine hundred dollars, maybe even like seven, bindings that are like four hundred and like get someone's used skis or like skis are not as good for like four hundred dollars. So I mean depends on if you think that's viable. Like if you're gonna go and do it, it's like wonderful exercise. Like and now there's only like one resort in Colorado that doesn't let you skin uphill. Everyone else has an uphill ski policy. So you can go and like skin uphill in a very safe environment. So there's no avalanche danger, nothing that you need to like be worried of. 
and get this amazing workout in and um, all a day's work, you know, and then go ski the lifts or go ski backcountry, you know, one way or the other. It's If you ski on a resort, it's super safe. And a lot of runners now and cyclists are starting to do it because it's um, a really good crossover winter training. Instead of just downhill skiing, you now have this ability to get your heart rate up and keep it flowing all year. Well, it sounds really, really cool. One of the things that I love about it, I love mountaineering. I like winter mountaineering. But I also like just covering distance in the backcountry and seeing, you know, the different views and the oh, scenery. Yeah. It's it's so cool. So It is so cool. It, it's so beautiful. There might, like, um, the sunsets and sunrises, I think, in the wintertime are, like, probably a little bit better than in the summer. Just because the peaks and where you are, and if you can get up someplace and have a sunrise or sunset... It is pretty special. We we never take it for granted. Like every day, if we, I mean, every day that we get to do that, it's special. Well, I'd like to ask you specifically for advice. If a, if one of our listeners wants to incorporate more adventure into his or her life, and they want to perhaps even uh, make a career out of adventure sports, what would you recommend? How can they pull that off? Oh, good question. Well. I would say the first thing would be to go find a place that you can do an orienteering race or take an orienteering class and learn how to use a map and a compass and like learn how to use it really well. And, um, and if you already know how to do that, I would say go do a couple of orienteering races. Um, and then otherwise, if you're really like, Oh, I can do all these things. I want to like be on a team or go do an adventure race. There's actually races now that you don't have to have four people to compete in. Like they're the smaller races, like six to 12 hours um, or get on one of those websites like Google adventure racing or, and there's always boards like, Oh, our teammate got hurt. We're looking for another guy or girl that could come race with us and just go give it a shot and see if you even like it. And um, I'm like 90% of the time people love it. And they're like, Ooh, I can't wait to train and do more. Um, But there's a whole adventure racing community out there you just have to seek it out. And thankfully, we have Google. Yeah. Yeah. So it took Google. Take me to the end of the race. You've been racing for days. You're, you know, you've been through all sorts of experiences and hardships and challenges. What does it feel like to cross the finish line? Oh, well, we'll just preface this by the, the three miles preceding the finish line. Because at that point, we know we're going to win. And I'm with these three guys that I've been with now for the last, like, you know, well, I've been with them for like 10 plus days because we have days leading into the race. And we just started talking about like all the crazy, wonderful, incredible, amazing moments we've had, you know, like we get to reminisce as we're just like jogging, trekking into the finish line. And, and so you have this really amazing like bond with these guys and, and just to, because you remember different things like, oh, yeah, that did happen. Oh, yeah, right. I remember you threw up or, you know, or like, <laughs> remember, like we saw those skunks, like the British guys, they were like skunks. And I was like, get away. Like, oh, it's so funny because we have different perspectives. I don't have skunks. I don't know how smelly they are. But, you know, there's we get to reminisce. And so going into the finish line, you kind of because it's maybe a little less fast paced at that point you really get to savor the moment and enjoy it maybe more so than just like when you run a marathon, you like cross the finish line, you're done. Like you really get to remember the good and the bad that just happened. And then of course, when you cross the finish line and there's just like press everywhere and they're playing crazy music and they hand you a bottle of champagne and you drink it and you're pretty much drunk in like six seconds. 
Um, <laughs> it's like amazing because, you know, you haven't had food in like three hours or whatever, you know, it's just a different, you really do feel accomplished. Like maybe that you could conquer the world. Like you actually finished something that was incredibly hard and you stuck it out through all the pain and all the joy to get to the most joyous point. Mm. So you have the big celebration and then things start to wind down. What are the next 24 hours like? (laughs) How many calories can I eat? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not joking. It's not really funny. Um, No, seriously, this race we got done and the Japanese team and the South African team, they were like right there. And so we, um, they had this tiny little restaurant. We went inside. We basically, everyone stripped off their shoes and socks because they're just completely soaking wet. And so you're at a table in your like stinky spandex and they're just bringing in like the most amazing beef and potatoes and salad. And we're just like, I mean, I ate, we ate so much food. And so then it takes like an hour, you know, and then you're like, ooh, food coma. I'm tired. I have been racing for a long time. And so then we actually got bussed a couple of hours to this village and another town. And we slept for the night, wake up in the morning, eat. (laughs) (laughs) And then mess with some gear, eat. And then mess with some more gear and eat some more. It is your body for like the next actually two days. It's just like replenishes everything that you just took out of it. So it's really essential to eat good food and to have good food. But yeah, lots of messing with gear. We call it faffing, which drives me crazy. Actually, I like get on the guys all the time, like stop faffing. But it's like when you have like something that you have to clean, but then you have to like reclean it or um, like your bike, like washing it and all the things that get dirty and disgusting and do a load of laundry and wash your dry suit, dry it out, you know, like all the things that got disgusting that you just threw into a bag that you didn't care about, you now have to care about. You know, that helps me to kind of get a feel for the context of the sport, you know? Yeah. And it makes it, that's just, like, I was just thinking about it. That doesn't make it sound that great, but I mean, like we all know now that like the adventure race really doesn't stop when the race ends. Like you still have to like deal with stuff, but it's a different pace and like, it's okay because you can sleep when you want and like, you don't have to, you can't get lost doing laundry. Hey folks, be sure to swing by 180tac.com to check out the 180 stove and the 180 flame camp stoves. These lightweight, compact, multi-fuel stoves are made in the USA and are designed to be fail-proof on your adventure. These stoves offer the flexibility to cook your meal using twigs and sticks found around you or various other fuels like gel fuel, alcohol, charcoal, or even use them as a windbreak and stable cooking surface for remote bottle gas stoves. The ingenious locking tab and slot design ensures your stove is very solid and stable without the use of hinges, rivets, or fasteners that can fail you in the field. Visit 180tack.com to find your next camp stove. You know, you mentioned how important it is to have the food after the race, but how do you keep your energy level up during an extended race like this? What kind of food are you eating? Well, we, any kind of food that's high calorie, um, we, for the race, we make these bags, like, um, we take gallon size baggies and we make 12 hour bags. 
So I put in enough food and we'd say about 250 calories every hour. And so I like certain foods you can eat easier on a bike. So say like, um, I think what can like, you don't eat like potato chips necessarily on a bike. It's harder to eat a, you know, like a bag of potato chips, but you can eat bars. You can eat, um, like squeezable apple juices or like goos and gels and stuff like that. So food that you eat on a bike, is not necessarily the same as you eat on a trek. But we basically count 250 calories every hour. I mean, like, plan it ahead. But I am a salty girl. Like, I can't eat sugar as much as a lot of other people, maybe. So I eat a lot of potato chips. I eat a lot of just potatoes with salt on them. Um, this race, of course, because the weather was, I mean, the high was like 60 in the whole race. And the low is like 30. We actually take to freeze-dried food and, like, take your little stove, I mean, like a jet boil with us, and make food while we're trekking. Because we're on a trek for, like, two days. And you just can't live on potato chips for two days. Like, you still need something of substance. And that's when you get, like, 800 calories all at one time. And, yeah, you you know, you, you actually will carry that weight with you because it's important. Um, I like applesauce. I mean, I like fruit cups. Um, we make these things called cereal bombs, which is just, like, Whatever kind of cereal, usually like granola, add like your, you know, fourth cup of dried milk. So then on the road, on the trek, all you have to do is add filtered water and you can like have your cereal. And it makes you feel pretty normal because that's like a normal everyday thing. We ate a lot of pate because it's cold enough, but you can't eat pate in a real adventure race because, or like a hot one because they just put your bag out in the middle of nowhere mm. and it just gets hot and like stuff like that goes bad. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Anything that sounds good. If you go to the grocery store and you're like, oh, Little Debbie snack cake. Well, this one's 200 calories and this one's 400. You <laughs> always pick the 400. <laughs> and I, like in a normal day of life, like I cook like 95% of all my food, not like very minimally processed. And so you kind of shock your body into like, ooh, really nothing fresh, nothing amazing for the next six days. But it's just part of the game. You know, even if you backpack, you know that that's, like how it is. Yeah, it's about know? getting enough calories to, to keep on going. Yeah, it is. And like to want to eat it. And people make the mistake all the time, like newbie adventure racers, because you think like, oh, yeah, I like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or on bagels or whatever. And you get out there and you cannot eat bread. It's like your nemesis. It's so dry. And usually you're like on the verge of, of not being hydrated enough. And so then to put that in your mouth, it just sucks all the water out and you just like, like end up you know, it just is horrible. You can't do it. So you just end up bagging that kind of stuff, you know, things that sound good. Or if you're going at it like a slow pace that you could eat are not really viable at yeah. a fast pace. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. The the thick gooey peanut butter may not be the right choice. The dry bread, probably not the right <laughs> choice. And I'm with you. I can't do the sugars no. when I'm out like that. I can't do the sugars. Yeah. I have to do more of a protein, fat, salty diet. Totally. And so it definitely is harder to do that, but they make like tuna fish now that's in those like little packs. And so usually if it's like what ends up happening with me is I end up, my nutrition on the bike ends up suffering a little bit because it's hard to find things I can eat while I ride my bike for 20 hours, but I can eat anything when you trek, you know? Oh yeah, that makes sense. Let's shift gears a little bit. I always, I always try to get this question in. I want to hear about the time that things went really wrong. Okay. So that also the Patagonia. Um, so let's just pre-prep this by saying there's four people on the team, Chris, one of the guys, the 
24 hours or the 30, 36 hours before the race started, he got sick and he mm. threw up for 24 hours. Like he didn't eat anything. He was so sick. And we were just like, oh, what are we going to do? And as a team, we just decided that we were going to go to the start line and see what happened. Like everyone else felt fine. And so we were like, well, we'll just carry his pack. We'll limp him through. We'll see what happens. We'll just start, you know? So this eight hours leading into the start of the race, he was fine. And by the time the start, the race started, he was like, oh yeah, I'm good. And he's like, I mean, we didn't race super hard right off the bat because he was a little um, um, off the bat. I mean, like, because he hadn't kept anything in his body. He still wasn't super strong. But so then the first day, about 2 o'clock, um, Warren, second teammate, he gets sick. So he's off his bike, just getting sick. Oh, it was so miserable. And he proceeds, of course, to throw up for the oh, next, no. like, 24 hours. And we limp him through it, you know, and we're just like, oh, this is not the way we thought this race was going to go. And then it was my turn. So I got sick at six o'clock the next night. And I mean, there was times where I literally like put my foot down, threw up off my bike and kept riding. And it was miserable. Like, so the next day we were trekking, which was actually better than riding your bike. And I threw up more, <laughs> a few more times. And so I hadn't kept any food in my body for 24 hours. And it was just like, well, we, you just don't have the choice. Like you, you don't even have the choice to go slower. You're just like, what, how bad can, I mean, how much can I push my body and it uh-huh. not reject me? And, um, Luckily for me, I think I maybe was in the best situation there because, like I said, trekking was actually easier than biking. Like the position you're in or whatever is better. But Chris, the guy that got sick originally, he was like, just so you know, Yari, like you're not really going to want – like you're not going to feel good for another day. And I was like, okay. And maybe just mentally knowing that prepared me for two days of pretty bad – I mean hardship – Um, but it's definitely the worst I've ever suffered. I, I definitely, for the first time ever thought to myself, I might never leave my house again. (laughs) That does not sound like fun. And how did your team win under those conditions? Come on. Oh, well, well, the thing that I think that happened then is that the first night when Warren was sick, he just said, I'm going to have to sleep. And that was not in our game plan. We were not planning on sleeping that night. If no one had felt sick, we would have ridden our bikes through the night. And, but we had to sleep, Like he was like, and after knowing, I mean, yeah, I, I know how he felt. So, yeah, it's totally true. Like, so we slept for four hours. And so the next night when I started throwing up and it was like midnight, we finally went to bed at one. I was like, oh, we're going to have to sleep again, guys. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't think I can like trek through the night. And they were like, okay. So we had two nights. The first two nights we slept four wow. hours each. And that set us up, I think, to like we came back. I mean, cause we didn't get so augured in it to begin with, you know, a couple of the other teams I think exploded because of that. So maybe there's a strategy there. Maybe get a little bit more rest at the beginning of the race. Yeah, and I know, but it's like, um, because there hasn't been enough like studies done about that. It's like too scary to put yourself like without any, I mean, with just because you can't, or just because you sleep for nine hours in the first two nights. I just think that, it's mentally that would be too it's like too hard you know like it's just um because you get to a checkpoint and they're like oh yeah that team is nine hours in front of you it's like panic the nine hours in two days is like too many you know that's like six too many and so it's not and we just we didn't like for the first few days when we were sick and like just limping ourselves through we were like we'll just see how it goes like we just didn't have maybe an agenda at that point because we just were maybe just appreciating being there instead of full-on racing and then once we all felt good and we were like throw down Hmm. it went really well so yari you also teach clinics 
I do. Okay, so um, for both schema, I do actually adventure racing too. Adventure racing, ski mountaineering, mountain biking. Um, I part of that is that my love for the sport. I will I will do anything to encourage or get anyone else into the sport or have them have it the best time they could possibly have. There's going to be pain involved, but if I can make it more enjoyable or give you more skill, I'm all about it. So Griggs Orthopedics, they put on. Um, he organizes some mountain bike clinics and ski mountaineering clinics. And I, um, I teach for them and I actually teach for Dave Weens too at Western state. Um, but, and I can't really say enough about how much, especially girls, but anyone can benefit from going to a clinic and learning like the correct body position on a bike, um, how to breathe better, how to do everything better, how to do that better on skis, um, adventure racing a lot of it is like what gear to have how to look at a map and like read it better you know there's other stuff involved in that but um it really does help get advice and training from a professional you know to yeah i mean i've made enough mistakes like you don't have to make the same mistakes so if i can help well, that, that's cool I will, you know one you know one personal example would be about mountain biking most people can ride a bike but when you get on a yeah. mountain bike trail and, you know, you have a tight trail that's really curvy and you have some big drops and you have some big humps to get over and, and there are some techniques that are not just automatic that you would get from knowing how to ride a bike. And if you know those techniques, then it makes all the difference in the world. It really does. And then it's more enjoyable. All of a sudden, you're not like struggling to do tight turns or to like get do step ups or drops you it comes naturally and you're really comfortable at it and all the energy you save mentally and physically just goes into being faster just propelling yourself you know in a in you a know, better one way one of the keys and this is just a little tip for the listeners here if you're not a mountain biker or you are and you don't know this tip yet this is a good one so look where you want to go <laughs> oh yeah don't look at what you don't want to do don't look at what you like. If you yeah, look if you look at, at a tree, tree you're gonna, gonna hit the it. tree. If you look at a boulder, you're gonna hit the boulder. And God forbid, if you look off a drop, yeah. <laughs> you're going off. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's the craziest thing. And when I say uh, look, I mean turn your head, turn your head and look. look. The bike will follow. <laughs> it's true, and that's the so the opposite is true. If you look at the open space, then that's where you're gonna go. It's where you're gonna ski. It's where you're gonna bike. That's you know. If you look past the root if you look past the rock that's where you're going to end up not at it so there's an an application there for everyday life i think oh for sure and this is the beauty of adventure sports these sorts of little things that you pick up along the way that can really impact you look where you want to go in real life folks and i'm not i'm not just talking about when you're walking down the street <laughs> or driving your car although that's a good idea too but look at where you want to be where do you want to be in life focus on it you'll end up there it is totally true. I think I could actually write a book. Like everything I know about life, I learned from adventure racing. Please write the book. Adventure sports. I, I, I'd love to interview you okay. and hear what you have to say and read the book myself. So that sounds great. I'll start working on it. On that light, can you close us out with uh, what inspires you? Why do you keep doing this? At this point, I think my inspiration comes from getting to do new and different and exciting things. Um, and even that's like sometimes like riding a trail in Crested Butte that I've never ridden before or, um, but having the ability to be an, a professional adventure racer and going to travel the world and seeing China and Japan and Australia and New Zealand and 
Abu Dhabi and all over Europe and Paraguay and Chile and Argentina, like every place it, I have, it, that inspires me to like meet new and different people and see different cultures and um, see how we can all fit mm. together still. I think that all of us would benefit with a dose of that. Yeah. But I think I've benefited from the dose of yeah, that. So, great. I mean, I can speak from personal experience. Well, cool. Hey, if someone wants to participate in one of your clinics, how do they get involved? Um, I would. I think that griggsortho.com would be a good place to check out because there'll be stuff on that website of the upcoming clinics. Um, Adventure Extreme is a – they put on adventure races, and um, I teach clinics for them sometimes. That That's a good place. Gravityplay.com. Yeah, and they have – I don't know, between like three and five adventure races every year. And they, they do a great job of, of yeah, put them on. And, um, and I go Griggs out and teach ortho, it some of them. That's G-R-I-E-G-G-S, ortho? No, no, G-R-I-G-G-S, Griggs, cool. ortho.com. Um, and I think that, yeah, unless you're in high school, I teach you a high, <laughs> I teach high school mountain bike clinics. But I don't know, that would be a Dave Weens thing, Western State gotcha. University. Well, very cool. Well, Yari, thank yeah. you so much for being on the show and giving us what I think is a, a very realistic view into adventure sports <laughs> and all of this. And I, I wish you all the best. You have amazing stories. Thanks. And good luck. Just keep on doing it. Perfect. I appreciate it. I can't yeah, wait well, to Yeah, well, we're going to have to have a few more shows with you on here because there's so much more that we could dive into. But anyway... <laughs> and to all of our listeners yeah. out there, as always, thank you very much for your time today and get out there and have some fun. Awesome. Don't forget, April 22nd for the Adventure Sports Podcast Meetup with Peter Schuster, Louisville, Colorado. See you there.